take a minute and pray together. Uh, Father, we are so grateful that, um, that what you began in us, that you will complete. Uh, your word says that all that you give to the Son um, will remain securely in his hands, and he will raise them up on the last day. So we, we bless you this morning that we stand secure in Christ, and I pray that where we feel a lack of security, that our, our hearts and minds would be secured by the truth of your word, that we wouldn't rely on our feelings or our circumstance to provide the security that only you can provide through your promises. You have been good to us, uh, even in ways this last week that we have forgotten about, that we uh, have taken for granted. Uh, you have been so kind to bring us back together again this morning. And even now, it does our hearts well just to, to sit and consider. And let me just encourage you to take a moment and consider the various ways that God has been good to you this week, maybe specific ways he's answered prayer, that even in our silence, maybe we give him praise due to his name and Thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness. Well, Jesus, you said that if, um, if the people didn't praise your name, that even the rocks would cry out. Um, all the heavens declare your glory, oh God, and so I praise your people that we would do the same, that we would lift up um, a voice of praise, uh, prayers of praise that our time, our brief time here together this morning, that our hearts would be in such a posture that you'd receive the praise due to your name. Help us to be humble and hungry as we approach your word this morning. I pray that you'd help us to walk away from it uh, more like Jesus. Um, I pray that you'd protect us from just seeing this as some sort of description of, of a time that once was, of a person who once was, and that you'd allow us the gift of your spirit to apply these words to our hearts. And we love you. We thank you for the, the security that we have in Christ this morning. It's through his name that I pray. Amen. Amen. Good morning. Come on, y'all. Good morning. Thank you. It's a little better, a little broken, but better. All right, good to see you. Um, grab your Bibles or your Acts notebook, whatever you're using, and let's go to Acts chapter 6. Uh, we're going to be in the second half of Acts chapter 6. <clears throat> and uh, this is a, a larger chunk than we normally would preach. I've got 68 verses this morning that I've got to cover, but I'm not going to read all of them. So you can take a deep breath, a sigh of relief, whatever you want to call it. <clears throat> uh, we're going to summarize a chunk in the middle. The whole story is the story of Stephen, the first martyr of the early church. And so every single Sunday, uh, I get up here, someone gets up here to preach a message, right? And by and large, we're usually welcomed with uh, open arms, even smiling faces. Like y'all want to hear a message from God's word. You want to hear a sermon. That's at least part of the reason why we come together, right? You can say yes, it's okay. I'm assuming that's the case. <clears throat> uh, Stephen's sermon got him killed. And that's exactly what we're going to read this morning. So Stephen um, preached boldly in the face of opposition, and at the end of it, they took his life. And so it reminds me, just as a pastor and as a preacher, that I know very little of the experience that I'm about to preach to you. And as believers in this context in America, uh, we know very little, if any, of the type of persecution that we have already read 
in six chapters the early church has experienced. And that even today, men, women, and children who love Jesus across the world experience because of their faith in Christ. And so there's a, there's a danger in this text, maybe two different types of danger. One is just kind of disconnect ourselves because we don't experience the same type of challenge. And somehow it can just be a description of someone else's challenge. That's one. Uh, the other is just to see it as maybe just a historical representation of something that the church once did, once was, once experienced, and the same effect happens. We kind of remove ourselves arm, arm's length from application of God's word this morning. The primary thing that I would submit that we see from Stephen's life is that he was a man who was like Christ in his life and in his death. And we're going to see both sides of that this morning. So in chapter 6, the first half of it, uh, Mike Sheffel last week opened the word with us. And in the first half of of chapter 6 is a complaint that arises. This church is 20,000 approximately people. And there's a complaint that arises because some of the widows are being neglected in the distribution of food. And so the problem is solved by raising up seven men of good repute, full of the spirit, who can help the apostles distribute food. And so problem solved. The church is engaged in not only in bringing up the problem, but engaged in the solution. But look back at that section. If you go to chapter 6 and look in verse 3, it says, It says, therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. And then it goes on to list off these seven men. So look in verse 5. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen. He's the first one listed, and he's the only one that gets a little bit more description. Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And then the fruit of this moment is that the word of God continued to increase and multiply. People were added to the church, right? So Stephen is called out specifically as a man full of wisdom and the spirit. And so one of the things that we see here, and I'd I'd submit to us just real early on in this message that we see in Stephen's life that should be true of every single Christian is that when you're full of the spirit of God, what happens over the course of your life is you move from one degree of usability to another. So before the beginning of chapter six, Stephen was already serving. He was serving tables in different ways in the church. He's engaged in service. He's a man of good reputation. That kind of implies that he was busy serving the church and serving the Lord. So he's usable in the hands of God. He's full of the Spirit. And then what happens in the beginning of chapter 6 is he's enlisted to a little more formal position, but he's doing ultimately largely the same thing. He's serving the church. And what we're going to see next is Stephen is the first example of someone in the early church that was accomplishing signs and wonders. And so as a believer, for you in your life, just consider for a moment, are you moving in the course of your life imperfectly down a path of one degree of usability to to another? Are you growing in your your usableness, if I could refer to it that way, in the hands of God for his glory and for our joy? So let's read starting in verse 8, and this is where we'll kind of pick up in our primary text this morning. Verse 8, chapter 6. This is God's word, and this is what it says. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. 
Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, gazing at Stephen, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So Stephen's resume at this point, this brief moment is second to none. He's full of the spirit, full of wisdom, he's of good repute. Chapter 7 starts with this, or the, I'm sorry, the verse 8 starts with this depiction of him being full of grace and power. He's graciously powerful, arguably one of the greatest descriptions you could give of anyone, full of grace and full of power. And it, it's no surprise that someone full of the Spirit looks a whole lot like Jesus does or did, right? Because Jesus was full of the Spirit all the time. In Jesus, we have the unending power of God graciously stooping down to minister to broken and sinful people. In Jesus, we have infinite capability mingled with infinite compassion. That is Jesus Christ, graciously powerful. And so Stephen represented the the same type of gracious, winsome posture toward the people he interacted with, but also present within him was the power to do signs and wonders. The Spirit of God was actively, presently engaged in Stephen's life. And as we've seen multiple times already in the book of Acts, what happens oftentimes when you have a faithful, bold witness for Jesus, oftentimes what happens is it leads them right into the teeth of resistance. We've seen that already multiple times, and that's what happens with Stephen. And so you have this, this gathering, this collection of people, these freedmen, Jewish Roman captives who've been freed and now are living in Jerusalem. And it's, the picture is this. There's Jews from all sorts of corners of Jerusalem, different synagogues even, that all gather up to dispute what Stephen is saying. They don't want to hear what he's talking about. And so they rise up to dispute his oratory. They're trying to debate and debunk everything that he's saying. And so they, they rise up, but they don't have the goods They don't have what it takes to break down what he's saying. They can't stand against him. They can't refute him because of the Spirit of God being upon him so strongly. And so they quickly moved from disputing his words to distorting his words. And you saw it there probably when we read through it. Go back to verse 11. It says, they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders, and they came upon him and seized him. So they, they go from disputing to distorting his words. They instigated men. They stirred him up, much like in this fake trial of Jesus. Stephen gets much of the same. They put in position false witnesses to utter false things against Stephen, just like Jesus, at the hand of religious leaders. And just like Jesus, ultimately, it would culminate in his execution. He's like Jesus in his life in his preaching and in his death. And the accusation of the false witnesses in one way is a humongous commendation for Stephen. Why? Because they basically say this, this guy will not stop talking about Jesus. 
Like he's always talking against this holy place and the law, and namely talking about how Jesus said he was going to tear down the temple, which they didn't, they confused, right? They're distorting Jesus' words. Jesus said that in reference to his own body. But Stephen wouldn't stop talking about Jesus, and it annoyed the mess out of these religious leaders. They didn't want to have it. So having been unable to dispute his words, now they distort them and take him by force. And notably, what they see when they look at Stephen, even though they hate his words, they see a man that the presence of God was visibly upon. They looked at him, and they saw his countenance, his face as like that of an angel. And there's a story in the Old Testament when Moses went and got the law for the second time on Mount Sinai. In chapter 34 of the book of Exodus, when he comes down from getting the law, his face is glowing to the degree to where the people are afraid of him and won't listen to him. They turn away from him. He was, he was so overwhelmed by the presence of God that his face glowed in the presence of the people. And there's a corollary here with Stephen. Because Stephen was like the presence and the power of God was so upon Stephen that he glowed. There was an angelic presence almost on his face. And, and here's something I would encourage you with. Just hear me on this. This is a pastor, as a friend, as a brother in Christ. As a believer, we can enter into this joy with Stephen, is that there will be people who will come against you because of your faith in Christ. And there will be some who at times will misrepresent you. But there will never be anyone who can take the presence of God from your life. Can I get an amen to that? They may misrepresent you. They may come against you forcefully even. But there's no one who will ever be able to take away the presence of God in your life. And that's what you see in this description. Although they're forcefully coming at Stephen, they couldn't deny the presence of God in his life. And they certainly couldn't take it away. And so what happens next? Well, Stephen delivers a sermon of sorts. And look in chapter 7 and verse 1. The high priest turns after he hears the accusations against Stephen, and he says, are these things so? Basically says, hey, what, what do you have to say for yourself to these things? They're saying that you've spoken out against Moses and the law and this holy land. And so the issue is that they're, they're saying that you're, you're speaking out against the, this holy place, the temple, and the land. And so what Stephen does in this masterful way, and I, I don't have time to read all 50 verses is he takes time to do this. And let me just kind of summarize it this way. He's, he's forcefully indicating to them that God's presence isn't in a place that's always in and with his people. So let me just kind of illustrate that, and I'll survey a little bit quickly this section because we don't have time to read all 68 verses. But read back there with me. So Stephen, what do you say? Stephen said this, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. So this is the first example. So just kind of file this away as I indicated. So Abraham, the first thing they say is God appeared to Abraham not when he was in Palestine, not when he was in Israel. That God appeared to him, called him by name, called him his own when he was out in Mesopotamia. God's presence isn't limited to this small place in Israel, Palestine, in the, the temple. God was there with him. And even when God brought Abraham into this land, look in verse 5 of chapter 7. He says this, yet, yet when Abraham came into the land, yet he gave, God gave him no inheritance in it, no, not even a foot's length. 
but promised to give it to him as a possession to his offspring. So even when he came into the land, Abraham didn't have a possession of the land. God's presence isn't bound by some location or place. It's always with his people. And then he goes in to talk about Joseph. He says, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Jacob had a son named Joseph. And Joseph went to Egypt. And what do we hear about Joseph in verse 9? Look there with me. The patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, Joseph's brothers were jealous of him, sold him into Egypt. But what? God was with him. God's presence isn't relegated to a place or location. It's always with his people. They're making the point, and this, you'll see this trend. It'll continue on. So Joseph abided there. The people of God were saved from the famine. You know the story probably of Joseph. God put him in a place of prominence so that his family could be saved from the famine. The whole nation of Israel is saved because he's in a place where he can give food to them. What, what they intended for evil, God made for good. You know the story probably. And then what happens is that the, the people of God continue to be fruitful and multiply in Egypt. And there's another evil king that comes who didn't know Joseph. And so the Israelites were taken into slavery, forced slavery in Egypt, and that's where Moses comes on the scene. Verse 18 in chapter 7, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt, but God was with the people. Even though Pharaoh treated them harshly and tried to keep them from flourishing, God was with them, and Moses was born, and God's hand was upon him. Just hang with me. I know we're covering a lot. I'm bouncing around a little bit. When Moses fled to Midian, God was there. He spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. And let's read verses 31 through 33 about Moses. It says, When Moses saw it, the burning bush, he was amazed at the sight. As he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. Remember, Moses in the wilderness, in the middle of nowhere. And who shows up? God does. The presence of God in this unique burning bush appears to Moses And he says this in verse 32, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have to believe that in Stephen's mind, that that term was underscored because this religious mob would see the temple as holy ground, the, the land of Israel and Jerusalem as holy ground, not out in the wilderness of Midian. So God was with his people, with Moses, not just in this place, this particular spot, but he was with his people. In the obscurity of the wilderness, the presence of God was with Moses. He came down to deliver them in verse 34. As our fathers wandered in the wilderness outside the promised land, God met with them through the tent of meeting. And that's what we see later on. Look in verse 44. It says, our fathers had the tent of witness, his tabernacle, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it. According to the pattern that he had seen, our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dis- dispossessed the nations that dro- God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found fi- favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. So what's the point? So he's getting ready to culminate his argument. Remember, God's presence isn't limited to a place, a location. It's always with his people. So even in the uniqueness of the tabernacle, if you were with us when we studied through Exodus, this unique tent where God established a dwelling place among his people, his presence was there uniquely, and then more permanently in the permanent temple. There was a way in which the presence of God was there. But Stephen's drawn their attention now, this culmination of the argument. Look with me in verse 48. He just came off of talking about the temple, the sacred temple. 
that they're talking about the fact that he's trying to speak against it. And he says this. He says, yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, he quotes from Isaiah 66, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? So this yet is God doesn't dwell in houses made by hands. Y'all need to recognize that God's presence isn't limited to a place. It's always been with and among his people. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. God's presence isn't confined to a particular space. He's with us. He's within us. He's behind and before us. His presence remains upon us to graciously and powerfully change us. John Stott put it this way. He says, a single thread runs right through the first part of Stephen's defense. It is that the God of Israel is a pilgrim God who is not restricted to any one place. If he has any home on earth, it is with his people that he lives. Now, if I'm trying to bring some application for us into this, you know, we don't engage in temple worship. So maybe we're not given to worship the temple and not the God of the temple. But I do wonder at times if we limit the presence of God and the working of God in our lives to this moment, to this place. This is important. Being here with God's people, singing his praise, being underneath his word, building community, even in the context of an hour and a half on Sunday morning is vitally important to the health of God's people. Make no mistake about it. But it's not just here that we experience the presence of God. It's not just here that God walks with us. Day by day, his presence through his spirit within his people. That's the miracle of the Christian testimony. Is that we don't have to go somewhere to experience God, that God is within his people. And now these curious people walk around like many temples, filled with the presence of God, making him known throughout the nations. Now his people are the temple. And we're filled with his power to make him known. He says, I'll never leave you. I'm with you, even to the end of the age. And so they levy these accusations against Stephen about how Jesus was going to destroy the temple, but he really was talking about his body. And there's a way in which Stephen is saying, hey, I want you to understand that when I speak against the law or against the temple or the land, it's not to undo them. It's just to point you to the fact that Jesus is the culmination and fulfillment of both. And in preaching that, Stephen is preaching the same thing that Jesus did. Let me just highlight two quick examples. In Matthew 5, 17, this is what Jesus said. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And speaking of himself, and this had to have blown circuits. It certainly made them mad. Jesus said of himself, something greater than the temple is here. As he pointed to himself, I'm the I'm the ultimate presence of God in man. Something greater than the temple is here. He says, destroy this temple. In three days, I'll raise it up. That's why we celebrate next week in the resurrection of Jesus. And he would do that physically. From the dead, he would rise. And then spiritually in his church, as though now, if you're a believer, who exists and walk around as these many temples of the presence of God in the world and to the nations. 
And back in chapter 7, verse 35 through 50, Stephen talks about Moses being a ruler and redeemer that the fathers rejected in verse 35. It says they refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And these unexpected words, what does he give them next? You might expect at this point in his argument to hear something like this. He steps forward. He's like, hey, I know the accusations you've heard. He explains how the presence of God isn't limited to a place. And maybe he steps forward and says something like this. Having said all of this, you can finally see that I'm not guilty of what you've charged. Maybe you might expect to hear that from Stephen. But that's not what he says. The next thing we see is if you can picture him surrounded by this religious mob that already wants to take his life. He looks him dead in the eyes, and this is what he says. Verse 51, he says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Yikes. That's some preaching right there. I don't know if you caught that. Stephen's preaching, looking at, these religious leaders in the eyes and saying, you are stiff-necked. That's an Old Testament term that God would always use for their rebellion against him. You're rebelling against God. Just like your fathers rejected Moses, you're rejecting the one that Moses talked about. Because Moses said there was going to come a prophet after him who God would raise up to be a prophet for his people. And you have denied him. And keep reading is what he says. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Rhetorical question. All of them. And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. You, like your fathers, have rejected and persecuted God's messengers. You, like your fathers, have received God's word, but you refuse to follow it. And you say you revere Moses, but you rejected the very one that he spoke of, this righteous one, you stiff-necked murderers. These are some harsh words. And just for a second, this feels like the most appropriate place in this text, in this moment, to just kind of lean in for a second, because it can maybe feel like we can distance ourselves from even the posture of these religious leaders. There's a way in which everything that Stephen just described of the religious leaders describes every single one of us apart from Christ. That we maybe received the word of God, but we have we've rejected it. Like we've we've heard God compel us to follow him, but instead what we've done is we've turned aside from him to turn back to Egypt. Let me just ask you if you're in this room and you've you've never surrendered to Jesus, like do you find yourself turning away from God and turning to Egypt? Egypt, Babylon is a picture of the world and evil. Because we, we have to understand is when you turn away from God, you're not turning to some alternative neutral ground. You're either for Christ or you're against him. He's either your king or he's your judge. So Stephen doesn't mince words here. Turning away from God will always be followed by a turn to Egypt. You're resisting the Holy Spirit. You resist the Spirit of God. Ultimately, you resist the Son of God. And ultimately, there's only destruction that will be found there. So maybe some of you in this room, you just need to hear this maybe once again. There will never be another solution for your greatest problem. That our greatest problem before God is that we all have rebelled against him. And as a result, stand 
condemned in his sight, separated from him. And Jesus is the only solution to that problem. That when he hung on the cross, he became everything that we are in our sinfulness. And as we look at him by faith, we become everything that we're not, namely his righteousness. Through a profound, simple gaze of faith. And the question is, have you trusted completely in that? Have you submitted to him as your king? Or do you find yourself turning back away from God and back to Egypt, back to captivity to sin, back to the things that ultimately you'll never find satisfaction and joy in life in? Don't resist the spirit of God. Jesus is the only solution to your soul's greatest problem. He's the only remedy for the problem of sin. But Stephen says, you stiff-necked people. And then what happens next, no surprise, the religious leaders are incensed by what he just said. Let's read together in verses 54 through 60. It says, now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at Stephen. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, once more, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. As they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. So Stephen starts with this heavenly gaze, this heavenly vision. He gazed into heaven. The word gaze, maybe the English, doesn't quite capture the force of this language. It would be something like this. He, fast, he fastened his eyes earnestly to heaven. He stared intently into heaven. So all of us are guilty probably of grabbing our phones and trying to detach from reality to escape the moment, right? just absentmindedly flipping through our phones. This wasn't some attempt just to look at the clouds to kind of escape the difficulty of the moment, like an absent-minded stare up into the sky. It's not what this is. He looked intently as if he pierced through the clouds to the very throne room of heaven, and guess who he found there? Jesus, standing at the right hand of God. And this picture is unique because most of the time when Jesus is depicted in heaven, he's seated at the right hand of the Father. A lot of people have talked about that over the years commentary-wise, and I think it's worthwhile to consider. Because what if, what if it was, like for Stephen, whether he saw Jesus actually or not, that with eyes of faith he looked into heaven, he saw Jesus stand up, almost as if to move toward him, to come to his aid, to welcome him home. That's the Jesus that we serve. Engage with his people in the midst of their greatest pain. And he stands to move toward them, to come to their help. He's not indifferent to their pain and their suffering. When difficulty swirls in front and around us, do we look to heaven? Or do we stare intently into the truths of heaven? Colossians chapter 3 gives us that kind of picture. It says this. It says, if then you have been raised with Christ, if you are in Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. 
And as sure as we look to heaven, the eyes of our faith enable us to see Jesus right there. The one who is alive and will always live. See Jesus at the right hand of God. Not even just seated, but standing up to come to your aid, to draw near to you in your time of need. And one day to welcome us home. It's notable in this moment that that what Stephen does and what he sees, he actually speaks about. So this whole series on the book of Acts is called Sent. Acts 1, 8. Jesus says, you're going to receive power to be my witnesses everywhere, here, there, and everywhere. You're going to go and you're going to speak. You're going to witness about me, my life and my death and my resurrection. You're going to go and you're going to speak. And this is exactly what Stephen does. Look back there with me just for a second. Full of the Holy Spirit, verse 55. Stephen gazed into heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And what does he do? And he says... And he said, behold, look what I'm seeing. I see it, and now I'm going to say it. I behold it, now I'm going to declare it. That's exactly what believers are to do. I've seen Christ. I've seen his glory. I've known the riches of his salvation. I can't but tell of how rich I am in him. You see it, then you say it. You behold it, and you you declare it. That's the identity of the believer, just like it was of Stephen. And this religious mob, in response to Stephen's faithful preaching, even his heavenly vision and the words that came out of his mouth, they turn into a lynch mob. They grab Stephen. You can picture it. Put yourself there just for a second. They grab Stephen. They take him outside the city, rejecting any notion of the law. This was illegal even for them. They took him outside the city. What would have happened is they would have put him in some sort of ditch below their feet, Why? So it would be a lot easier to stone him and hit his head. So this group, this angry mob of religious leaders, take him outside the city, put him in the hole, and they do what? They take off their jackets. Why? So they're not restricted when they're throwing stones at his head. And they put their jackets where? At the feet of none other than Saul. Saul of Tarsus, who becomes the Apostle Paul. We'll get back to that in just a minute. But one by one, just picture it for a second. Stephen, he's there. He's seen the glory of God. He's seen Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father and stones just one after the other, crushing his bones, taking his life. Feel the magnitude of it. That's what happened. He's the first one to die for his faith in Jesus. This has happened so many times throughout the centuries. The blood of God's people, the seed of the church, the growth of the church, the expansion of the kingdom, and Stephen is the first. They shed their coats, they throw their stones, and just like Christ in his life, in his preaching, he's like Christ in his final moments. And you might recall, even when we read that section of what Stephen said, let's read again verse, I don't know if we read this, 56. He said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. As they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Remember those words. And falling to his knees, he prays on behalf of those who were stoning him. Does that sound familiar? In Luke chapter 23, Jesus did the same thing. He was on the cross Verse 34 of chapter 3, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. 
as he was crucified on the cross and they cast lots to divide his garments. Verse 46, then Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Stephen saw Christ before the stones began to hit him. And Stephen saw Christ as the stones took his life from him until the end. He saw Jesus alive as the one who would receive him. Christ is alive and he stands and will receive his, saint, his saints. And I wonder if Stephen felt something like this, maybe even said something like this to himself. As he sees Jesus alive from the dead, standing in the heavens, the right hand of God, I wonder if it was something like this. <clears throat> the crucifixion at the hands of the Romans couldn't hold Christ down. He stands in forever life. As a result, I wonder if he felt something like this. So these cold, hard stones may take my life here, but they only pave the path for my life ahead. He saw it, like he saw so clearly Jesus in heaven, as if the stones crushing his very body were the, the pathway to lead him to glory. You feel that? Do we feel that? We sense that, it's so near. We see Jesus there. Like next Sunday is not a game. Like next Sunday changes everything. If Jesus is alive, it changes everything. And it possesses the hearts of God's people. Where we see him now, raised from the grave. So we proclaim his fame because we have security in him. And he's alive for us. He's alive in us through his spirit. And even in the worst of deaths, Christ is still alive standing on behalf of his people. One of the things I love most about the many truths about Jesus' role in heaven for us, there's never gonna be a moment in your life, if you know Jesus Christ, there's never a second where he ceases to pray for you. One of the, the products of Jesus being alive is that he always lives to make intercession for his people. Every single second we're alive pleading his finished work on our behalf. It truly is finished. And I hope that secures your heart this morning. So for believers, like Christ in life and in death, in our joys and in our pains, I pray that we gaze intently into heaven, seeing and knowing through the eyes of our faith that he stands there with and for us. And one of the, the wonderful kind of silent pictures that we're left with at the end, we'll close with this is that Stephen's witness had an inescapable impact on the harshest of enemies of Christ. Remember that young man stood by watching, coats at his feet, piled next to him, all those who were hurling stones at Stephen? Saul of Tarsus, this man from Cilicia. And he's standing there, and years later, after coming to faith in Christ, which we'll get to next week, in chapter 22, Paul is now giving a defense to those who are seeking to take his life. And this is what he says in verse 20 of chapter 22. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself, Saul, Paul, was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. I just wonder for us if we need to remember that, like we, we never truly know probably the impact that our faithful witness will have on the world around us. There may be some who come that we never see the fruit 
of our faithful labor to preach Christ, to make him known, to faithfully live for him, to faithfully walk in the spirit, you may never see the fruit on this side of glory. But be encouraged, Stephen didn't either, at least not from an earthly vantage point. But in this moment, Paul is left with an inescapable imprint of the witness of Stephen on his heart and his ministry. And now in his own moment of trial, he refers back to the faithful blood of Stephen shed quite literally at his feet. And and a final, almost kind of fleeting note at the end of chapter 7. Look there with me. Stephen prays, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. It's just his passing note. It's almost like a whisper at the end of the chapter. The believer, like church family, if you're a Christian in this room, just like revel in this picture. This is hard to grasp if you don't just pause to think about it. That even the worst form of death for the Christian is like a momentary sleep. Like you fall asleep. It's referred to as sleep. It's a quick movement. Even the worst, most brutal, offensive murders of God's people for us is like a momentary nap in light of eternity. And we wake up on the other side to eternal and full, inescapable, incorruptible life. We'll fall asleep. Every single one of us will fall asleep. But if you're in Christ, you awake to life that you have never experienced fully on this side of the grave. So what you now experience, this momentary light affliction, right? This momentary light sleep, as it were. On the other side is producing for God's people an eternal weight of glory that cannot be compared. And even though like our outer bodies, our physical frame might waste away because of the difficulty of this life, that our inner person is being renewed day by day, because of Christ in us. Amen? Amen. I pray that you're encouraged by Stephen's witness, and I want to pray that God would make us more and more like Jesus and also like him as a faithful brother of the past. Let's bow our heads just for a second. Let's pray and invite the worship team back up. Father, we know that we are not as faithful as as you deserve. We are not as courageous as as you deserve and as we should be. Uh, But we thank you that we are um, accepted because of the blood of Jesus, that where our sin abounds, that grace abounds all the more, and that grace enables us to be who left to ourselves, we are just simply we are not. But what's impossible with us is possible with you. That the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells within us to give life to our mortal bodies, to make us bold where we want to be cowards, to make us faithful when we want to lose faith. And so God, I ask that you'd help us as your people to be those who are full of the spirit, full of wisdom, full of grace, full of power, not for our own glory, for our own reputation, but for yours for your glory, for your fame, for your reputation. Uh, We love you. We need you more than we know. And I pray that we would be just like Stephen. We'd be like Christ in our life and in our death. And we thank you that this, this world is not our home, that we are truly pilgrims here. And you are with us now 
And there will be a day where we'll see you face to face and what we know in part now, we'll know completely. And we long for the day where the shadow that we, we see here is dimly lit that we'll know in full glory and full, full weight and full measure. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for what you've done. We thank you that you're alive, standing at the right hand of the Father for us as your people. And I pray that we would know just the soul-securing strength of that truth this morning. So in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Let's go.